0: Hey guys, you're listening to another episode of my podcast, Young People's Lives. Today, alongside me, I have the amazing Mark Dempster. So we're going to be discussing Mark's journey of recovery, and he's released an amazing biography called Nothing to Declare. Um, It's a fantastic read. I highly recommend it. Um, It's all about his journey of recovery. And today, I'm here to ask him some questions about it.
1: And yeah hello there guys how are you doing good <laughs> yeah. to see you i'm
0: really honored to have you as a guest today so thank you very much
1: thank you and good to be here good to be here
0: how are you doing
1: good yeah yeah good Yeah. Real quick good yeah i have really been okay I, like, i've like i've done like i've just sort of focused on doing more meditation like uh to, to, to improve mental health because i realized that you know we're like being locked down and just been stuck in the house mm. and like so i have got really into sort of Every day doing, I'll tell you what I've done. I started to do five kilometer runs. Day I was doing like uh, cold showers. Uh, I get into it because Russell, Russell Brand is is a pal, and he uh, was uh, interviewed Wim Hof, and 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 so the breathing stuff, the cold showers is really I think really useful. So How,
0: do you find that really? rough? Do you feel really good? Oh after yeah, yeah, it? yeah.
1: When I when I do like when I what I was doing was I was doing like the five k runs, and then I was mm-hmm. coming back and then just go straight in for a coat. I mean, like, so, like, yeah, I'd basically put a little lukewarm, and then I'd wash, and then the next, and then I'd just turn it down, turn it down, and then I'd just be, and it'd be cold, and then I'd come out, and I'd just be like, yeah, really refreshed. Yeah, and, and and, it's really good to do meditation after that as well. To If you use that to wake you up and then do meditation, I found I was much more sort of, like, able to stay in the moment, progressing
0: is that is that your
1: routine for the morning yeah yeah like well well it depends when I wake up but I try to every day like do some meditation even if it's just for 15 minutes Mm. just to sort of like just to stabilize my mind because I wake up my mind as soon as I open my eyes my mind starts racing yeah into like the future things that are going to happen a bit of fear or it starts to project into the past and go, oh, you've done this wrong, you should have done this, and you should have done that, you know. And so when I'm in the future I'm in the past, I'm not in the present, mm-hmm. and I'm in either fear or resentment. So the meditation just helps to stabilise me.
0: Yeah, that's really good. I'm also a big believer of meditation, you know. Really, really helpful. Practising it every day as well is so beneficial, definitely. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, talking about kind of, you know, your road to recovery and just kind of, to gain a better understanding for the listeners out there, um, tell me a little bit about, you know, your success, because you have been on an incredible journey. So yeah. um, from from really Glasgow to, you know, Harley Street, it's a, such such an achievement. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if you wouldn't mind starting off yeah, yeah, your, your journey and, and how yeah, it all began. And well,
1: really, just for the, for the listeners, really, is that I started off in Glasgow as a kid growing up and I think like I, I grew, I, I was born really into a rock bottom really because my, uh, my parents, uh, my father was an alcoholic, my mother was like, they were young, they were like, and my father was a bit of a criminal as well and sort of petty criminal and uh, uh, the, and the family had a few of the uncles that had alcoholism so, so... So basically there was alcoholism grew up around the, the normalization really of alcoholism as well that it was looked upon as if oh they just hard drinkers and they, they, they work hard and they play hard. But actually they were alcoholics. And and so I I was a little daredevil from quite young. I didn't mm. really I think I was looking for a fetch. I was looking for uh, love uh, or 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 really attention or validation, uh from quite a young age. I, I was always chasing really my father's affection. I think because mm-hmm. I could feel that he, it it. I always got the sense that he didn't like me, and um, and I think I think what that was about was now that I look back and all and looking, I've made amends with my father, and he, and I, and. I, And my father got into recovery. I helped him get into recovery and he died sober. And he he was like 15 years sober. So he died with dignity and self-respect. We often say in um, in like 12-step fellowships, we often say whenever a man or woman enters the doors of 12-step fellowships, the heavens fall silent and God listens because a human being's dignity is about to be restored. And I... I, I think you know, the restoration of dignity and self respect is imperative. That, that's a real sort of key component of what happens in the recovery process. So so, when my dad he grew, I mean, so there's no one really to blame because the transgenerational influences were were such that my father was just was equipped with the skills that he he got from his father and mother, and so and and he was an alcoholic, so he mm. he had to focus a lot of his life he was focusing on the alcohol so he couldn't really ha- like really give attention to his child because the child was a, an IME was 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 an obstruction really or or he, he just yeah and and um so so as a child I started to look for the attention and I often think it's like uh before I became like an active drug addict mm. or alcoholic I think I was like a like a fruit that was ripe on a tree, that was just it was just a matter of time that it was going to happen, really. Because and if it hadn't went into addiction, it would have went into some eating disorder or self mm-hmm. harm or depression or violence. Maybe it would have went into something uh, to manifest to try and get this this sort of numbness that I got from drugs and alcohol. So st- straight up from a young age, daredevil, chasing adrenaline jumping off roofs and trying to get attention from other boys, like, wanting them to think that I'm great, wanting them to think that I'm cool. All that sort of stuff was was going on really young, like around girls even when I was really young, like, wanting... Just, just the, the manifestations of how I would go into fantasy about, like, if I just had this or if I just got enough, if people just really uh, thought I was cool then that would be enough. Then that would be, if they were all talking about me in a really, like, sort of dramatic way or thinking it was brilliant, then I would get this sort of respect. But equally, I had it around girls as well. Young girls. when I was, like, young, I'd be like, oh, if I just went out with this girl. I mean, it's, it's like 10 or 9 years old, right? Mm-hmm. I was... Because I think about my kids. My kids are, like, 17 and 15, and they're, like, so different. Well, they've never been exposed to any yeah. of this stuff. So they grew up really as sort of white middle class English kids Mm. who are not really, whereas I grew up like feral, working class poor area, Glasgow you know, uh, normalisation of crime, normalisation of alcoholism uh, poverty social, you know the whole thing like, I I think there's just so many different, it's like a a melting pot really, it's like the perfect Mm -hmm. storm really for addiction wherever you get like i think wherever you get like uh emotional unmet needs you know neglect or abandonment or or, vi- or or aggression and violence adversity in childhood coupled with early exposure to using drinking drugs and um, and the sensitivity of the if the child's got a you know a hypersensitive sort of personality that's like the perfect storm for for addiction really and <clears throat> So then it was like looking for adrenaline and then got to, start to sell drugs quite young, like 16, 17, by the, the time I was 18, I was get, I'd been arrested for intent supply possession of cocaine, got, got into, then came to London and uh, meanwhile like the the addiction was progressing but I couldn't mm. see the addiction progressing because it was all still fun. So it was still fun for quite a long time. I mean really from from when I started to use like cannabis, which was a bit late really. I was sixteen when I first used cannabis or fifteen, just coming up with sixteen and and I was drinking maybe I started my first drink was like maybe twelve or thirteen. But I wasn't drinking every day or anything like that but, but when I got to smoking cannabis, I smoke cannabis every day, and that was the where the addiction just really, and the uh, uh, the drugs uh, went sort of crazy, and I had an appetite, and and then I was very much obsessed with, I was obsessed with cannabis when I first started, like, I just like, really like, I, I had this book called The Great Books of Hashish, and it had all the countries where it came from, and I remember looking at the book and going, I'm going to get to all those countries, And this is the thing, I had a girlfriend. I remember I had a girlfriend, I had several girlfriends, but I had this girlfriend at that time, Claire, and when I was 20. And I remember we were in India and I was just smoking all the time. And she says, you know, Mark, you really do like, you you, you really like dope more than you like me.
0: And was that, at any point, was that kind of a realisation? Or when did you reach the point where you kind of thought that your substance misuse was kind of getting out of hand as such no I
1: think I think then even when she said that I remember being in so much denial and Mm. like saying and I was like smuggling it I started smuggling it at that time and I was like saying to her look Claire and she was just like a normal white middle class girl like family were from Ryslip and and I remember like and I'm saying look Claire you're, you're a really good cover for this because I, uh, I'm i going to put four or five kilos in my bag and take it back of me. and she was like you're crazy she's like you fuck it like it's mad like I am not going on the plane with you if you're going to do that you know and like and I remember feeling really angry with her that like she wouldn't consider like being a bit of a smoke screen for me and it was like it was mad when I think back it and how mm-hmm. it's self-centred and all that really at the core of it really self-centred not that I wanted her to be arrested for conspiracy then like because I would have Obviously, I took the blame, you know, but, but certainly, like, pulling her into the thing to make... Not really considering that she's going to feel really nervous and frightened and her boyfriend's going to wind up in jail for, like, X amount of years or whatever. But anyway, so I started to notice, I think, when I was 23, I think then I knew I was an addict. But that time, an alcoholic... I knew I was an alcoholic and an addict. And... But I was because I was making so much money I was reluctant to do anything about it because yeah. the, the lifestyle was like still really exciting so when it really got when I got clean eventually at 32 just before so I'd say about 4 years before from 28 my girlfriend and I was going out with a Jewish girl and she died in Israel we went to Israel to try and get clean to Tel Aviv she was, anyway, she was on the run from a, a importation charge. We went there. She, her family were quite rich, and then uh, from that four years at the end, right to the, the right to the, the final sort of days, I mean that was like a rock bottom, and then and then I then I, then I got clean.
0: I think it sends a powerful message to our listeners who don't really know much about substance misuse, because I remember when I first started working in this field. And I kind of began learning about, you know, alcohol withdrawals and hallucinations, and it really fascinated me. I, I generally was so um, naive to that. So, yeah, do, do you mind explaining no, a little right, bit no, about no, kind of that? So, listen yeah, Yeah, kind
1: of. no, totally, right. So, let's, let's talk about the different drugs because, look, with the alcohol, I became alcohol dependent, right? So, physically, mm-hmm. I became addicted to alcohol so that I needed. I'd go into DT because I was drinking every day
0: Yeah.
1: I then what started to happen was that like, I'd wake up in the morning I mean this took a few years for it to really sort of kick in but at, at the beginning it wasn't like this but then what what was happening was I was drinking, I was using alcohol every day to take away any fear or adrenaline like because I was involved in that business and yeah. always like looking over my back and thinking God I'm worried that I'm going to the police are going to get me or the are going to turn me over for the money so I'd be drinking every day, and what was happening, what would happen with the alcohol would, would be, I'd drink like maybe, yeah, I don't know, 10 cans of 10 throughout the day, mm. and I'd just be continually topping up. And then I'd wake up, so you go to sleep, and you only get like, you don't get a proper sleep when you're alcohol dependent. Well, Even even if you're not alcohol dependent, even people who just drink recreationally, yeah. don't get the right sleep that you you need. If you don't have alcohol, because it's poison. Alcohol, I mean, look, like it's not. If alcohol was found today, it just invented it'd be a class A drug. It's ethanol. It's poison. It's mm. like point, but because it's socially acceptable, the government made a lot of money on taxing it. Uh, the cost to the economy are they make more profits than they do at cost to the NHS. So they so it will continue like that way anyway. Um, so, uh, what what would happen is I wake up in the morning. I'd be like starting to shake. Like, because the alcohol is leaving the system, I mean start to go into cope like withdrawal really. Uh depending on how long and how much alcohol I've been taking, I can start getting hallucinations. I can certainly start fitting as you're saying Lauren. I can start and I did start having alcohol fits, fits at the end, which would mean if I didn't have a drink first thing in the morning, so I'd wake up and when I'd go into proper like withdrawal what would happen is I'd start having like almost like an epileptic fit and, and like you could pee yourself, you could shit yourself. It's like, it's horrible, man, because you just like, you're just com- bodies convulsing mm-hmm. because it needs, and I remember one time the paramedics came and I had a fit in and uh, not broke Park, it was in, it was not like Ruskin Park in Camberwell, and the guy, the pa- paramedic says, he says like, do you want to come with us to the hospital? And I says, I says no, really what I need is just a can of beer. I just need a can because I knew that I could just get a can of beer and that's the other thing is when you're in withdrawal it gets to a point where you can't actually get the beer down you're just like sick all the time it takes like half an hour or an hour to get like just the first can down and then so that's what happens with alcohol heroin withdrawals my god right so cocaine you just get but but, but it's not just get because cocaine make no bones about this cocaine as a psychological addiction it's more psychological, I think, more psychologically addictive than heroin is. But the difference between heroin and cocaine is heroin's looked at as a scummy drug. Cocaine's looked at as a bit of a glamorous drug because of the people with the, the, the sort of... As historically, how it's been sort of glamorised in the media and such like in some of the, the sort of uh, profiles that that sort of boast about using it. So that then creates this this... But actually, cocaine... The psychological and cocaine mixed with alcohol, and we know that a lot of people now. I mean, lo- loads are using alcohol and coke in combination, mm. which produces a third chemical in the body called cocaethylene, which really attacks the liver. It's really and so a lot of people when they're using, they're drinking, they're going out. I mean, look at all these bar. Look, you you were up in Hackney. We we had, in Hackney from two thousand and four. Five. We used to work with the police, uh, this, this is the drug service that I used to manage up there. We used to work with the police and we used to scan, They used this machine called an itemizer which basically looked at the top of t- toilet systems for traces of cocaine. So when they first started to use this thing, they'd go around these bars in Hackney. There was only like 10 or 15% of those bars that had cocaine by 2008, 2009. It was like 85%. Wow. No, it was like, and the increase in cocaine use in this country is mental because, and even as a, a professional working with clients, mm. the social group, when, when we were all well, using cocaine in the 80s, it was restricted really. It was isolated to particular pockets. It was sort of some gangsters that would use coke. It was like some media people, some arty people, eh, some aristocrats, people that could afford it. But um, or drug dealers, but but now it's across every spectrum, every social spectrum. I mean, like from your yoga teacher to your middle class, you know, a banker to your like every particular like paint and decorator to your scaffolder to your to your lord to your barrister to your. You know, it's like, mm. and I see them all coming in because I've seen I've worked with thousands of people over the years. And it's like cocaine addiction, cocaine addiction, mm-hmm. and and because they don't think it's such a big thing because they, because uh, uh, because they just think I don't know they just think oh well, I'm not injecting it I'm sniffing it, uh, uh, they don't know about the liver how how damaging it is for the liver.
0: So, just talking about your kind of personal experience, how did it go from? Sorry, I know we were touching on it before. So, how did it how did it go from kind of you know cannabis use then kind of led up to kind of crack and heroin? heroin ha- how, yeah. how did that happen?
1: Well, it happens quite, and this is the thing about having the addictive personality. It happens really like how the addiction because it's not if we think of it just not that the chemicals are not really the problem. The problem is the addiction. So the addiction is is the thought process that goes on how I justify and rationalise any type of behaviour. The voice in my head that speaks to me now it sounds like schizophrenia here, but but basically having an addict's like ha- being an addict's like having a twin that resides inside me. Like it's like a dark, like you know it's a bit like Dexter or thing, mate. You know, the, uh, you know the 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 dark companion and Dexter in that series. It's like. It's like having this, except he's not a psychopath so much, but he's just this, uh it's just this voice. It's like, so what happens is like my normal sort of boundaries around things. So when I first started smoking weed, I'd be like, okay, I'm just going to, yeah, this is great. I'm just, this was, this is exactly what it was like the very beginning. was like, I'm just going to smoke weed. I'm just going to smoke dope at the weekends, this is gonna be my thing. I don't want to be an alcoholic with my dad, so I'm not gonna drink alcohol, I don't really like alcohol, alcohol shit. I just wanted like to smoke weed at the weekend. And then within like maybe about a couple of weeks, I mean it wasn't long, maybe like a month, i started going, well I could smoke like uh smoke at the weekend yeah for sure, Friday, Saturday, but you know, should have a joint maybe on Wednesday or something, just to sort of and then it, it it goes like that, and before I knew it, it was like every day, every day mm. smoking weed, and it's like getting the money, to get the weed, get the dope. So like then all my salary really goes on dope, right? I mean like ha- hardly you know, and um, I start smoking dope all the time, and then it go, and then it, and then I'm like I'm never gonna take LSD, I'm never gonna take mushrooms. I'm not going to take... But then I'm around these people, older boys at the time, and they're all doing it, and I'm like... And then the, the sort of peer pressure, the sense of, like, not fitting in, mm. but also coupled with the fact that my character, my temperament is very risk-taking anyway. So I'm like... So I'm like, part of me, the rational, thoughtful, considered part's going, no, don't do not do any of this. Don't take acid. Don't take... Which is a bit frightened of it all but then there's the the the, the twins like going come on what's wrong with that you t- like don't be square like they're all doing it like and then before i know it, i've convinced myself okay i'll take some mushrooms i'll take some acid why not da, da, da. and then I, so so everything that i see i'm never going to do it, they all sort of collapse through time now heroin at the end so so see maybe I was a couple of years into my drug use. So it was like textbook progression. It was like cannabis. So cannabis and then some of these speed, speed, and then some LSD, some mushrooms, cocaine, but heroin was not thing. Cause heroin was like it's like serious drug. Uh, so then uh, a couple of years in, my friends were starting to use. Like just experiment with it, mm. and then uh, I remember, and then and then I tried it, I tried it, and then I went. No, this is how it happened. I tried it once, and I never got in from it. And then I went to India, so I was a bit of a late starter for for heroin, really, because I went to India and I took opium, and opium's like a sort of, I mean, it all comes from opium anyway, and it gets distilled and morphine. But and then I started to take opium in India and I loved it, I loved the feeling, but then even then I remember thinking myself I'm never going to become addicted to this, I'm too, this is what my head used to say, used to say I'm too smart, I'm not like these, uh, I'm like too bright for this, this is the part of the denial system it was like as if all these other addicts are stupid really and I'm, this was the ego, like that I'm superior in intellect somehow, and that it won't happen to me. Almost like, as if I've got a passport, like that I'm just going to, I'm just in transit. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to settle on it. I'm just passing through the country, but I'm never going to get, I'm not going to get stuck there, right? That's what it was like in my head, was that I'm just going to be in transit. It's like, I'm just in the transit lounge. I'm just going to, I'm just doing this for a couple of days. But as soon as you start getting, you know, as soon as you, you like for me, I mean, it's not, it's not that you get addicted to heroin just like that. It really mm. doesn't happen like that. What happens is, but for sure, is you don't really get anything from it the first time. second time you start to really get the feeling the third time, but the third time you got really you really feel it. And it is so strong and it's so powerful. And the way it works on your endorphin system, serotonin and and your dopamine and stuff in the brain as well. So you're just like, it's just like that whole comfortably numb, just like, uh, and then what, the problem with it is it's so nice that you go, oh, that's really good. Let me, let me, I'd like to still do this, but I'll do it once a month. And that's what happens. It's like, so, okay. So then I said that I'm not in transit anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm actually on a long, like, long flight but I'm going to keep, I will do it once a month and then those gaps get shorter and shorter and the next thing you're taking it every day and then and I remember the girlfriend who whose husband, her, her, her uh, yeah, I was going out with this girl mm-hmm. and uh, she said to me, Mark, you're going to wind up becoming a, She's this was when I was taking opium, I was going out with her and she says, you're going to wind up with a heroin addict, I can see it and I was like, no, 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 you know, um, but that's what happened.
0: Anyone listening that's kind of, you know, going through a kind of particular situation um, and that they're in a toxic kind of environment, Yeah. how would you kind of advise anyone to build that healthy relationship
1: with themselves? Like, because it's all self-esteem, it's to do mm. with the self-esteem and to do... It's uh, like if you find yourself so if you're a young person you find yourself that you're around a circle of people who are encouraging you to use or to, uh, or, or you find yourself in a position where you feel that uh, pressurised and that you're actually going down the road of uh, and you're you, you identifying yourself that you've got an addictive personality i.e. that once you start you can't stop and you want more and more mm. uh, and uh, uh, if you identify you're an addict, there is no other way but to get complete abstinence. Because you, if if you're an addict, try to control it, try to do it recreationally. It's just you know because it's like it's like you're feeding the wolf. It's like feeding a wolf or like or feeding a lion. Like uh, if you've got all this the characteristics, so the characteristics of people who have got addictions usually are. They're usually people that have got a heightened sensitivity, so they're quite sensitive as individuals. Or well, they get a heightened sensitivity. They usually feel a real sense of restless, irritable and discontent when they're not finding an addictive process. They look for, they, they produce, and this is fact as well, they produce less dopamine in the brain. They deal with stress not very well uh, because that part of the brain is compromised as well, and impulse control, so they're more usually impulsive by nature they produce less dopamine and dopamine uh, uh, as a neurotransmitter uh, provides meaning and purpose in life it's not just a feel good factor that we get when we do a run or something we get that sort of dopamine surge it's more like it gives you this sense of yeah direction and meaning and purpose so so if you've got if you've got some of the characteristics of being in that having an addictive personality uh, then it's going to be pretty damn hard like it depends on where you are on the trajectory as well of like because you might be at a stage where you might be able to not reverse it but be able to sort of control or or bring it back a bit it it just really depends but the issue is if you're if you're if you're are an addict it's like it, it takes you to the same so what i would recommend is they go they attend they go to your local drug service. Mm-hmm. They look online. They go like, there's narcotics anonymous, there's cocaine anonymous, there's marijuana anonymous. There's all these, like twelve step groups that they can look at, that they could go along to. There's loads. I mean, and uh, I mean, there's for every different chemical, there's a twelve step group. Really.
0: Do you mind explaining that for for? Yeah, it's business,
1: a twelve. Yeah. Like, step groups <laughs> are like it was created nineteen. 35 was the first 12 step group ever uh, created by, the, and it was about drinking. And that was like created by a banker and a, a broker. And basically, what it is the 12 step groups is uh, is like a free group that meets regularly. And now that loads of them are on Zoom, right? Mm-hmm. So, guys, this is good. You can, there's 24 hour meetings a day that are going on in Zoom, but you can literally. But now, because of the COVID restrictions are easing, there's going to be more like face-to-face meetings. So a lot of them are held in churches or community centres, and you just go along and you basically, it's usually people sit round and there's usually a secretary, a treasurer, and they, and they talk about the people that go to the meetings, just talk about what's happened to them in their life. They, they, they share their experience, their strength and their hope. Like, and what's helped him stay clean? And you know, it's the biggest evidence base for you know, like, that we have really for long term sobriety. Well, they say really residential rehab followed by 12 step is like the gold standard for sobriety for, for staying clean. So, there's loads of meetings like this around the world. There's 58,000 and there's more. There's like 70,000 meetings now. Of uh, one of the fellowships, is like and London, there's like 200 meetings a week. Like, so you just have to go on, you just have to look on Google and you'll see where the nearest one is to you. And you can go along, you don't need to pay anything. There's no fees, there's no dues, there's no pledges to sign, promises to make to <laughs> anyone.
0: If you hadn't have already guessed, I had some technical difficulties throughout the end of this podcast. So I just wanted to conclude by saying a massive thank you to my guest, Mark Dempster, And I wanted to say a massive thank you to the listeners of this show. Have a good evening and take care of your mental health.